My name's Scott. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Thank you so, so much for inviting me to your, uh, your wonderful function. I have been just treated uh, extraordinarily well, and uh, you have a great fellowship here. I, I can't tell you what a great time I'm having this weekend. I want to thank uh, Tom and Gene for picking up Sharon and let me tag along. And uh, Sharon and I uh, live a couple of miles away from each other, but we don't spend any time with each other unless we're a thousand miles from home. And then uh, we spend a lot of time. I want to welcome the gentleman who took the uh, was here for one day. You kind of looked like you'd been voted most attractive man on your cell block when you came up. You know, I, I uh, uh, you know, it's nice to win, but I don't know. You know. Uh, is this good? Is it bad? You know, and um, <laughs> uh, we're real, real glad you're here. Real glad you're here. And, you know, sometimes I hear people in the program, you know, with some time say, geez, I feel just like a newcomer again. And I know what they're saying. I know they, they're, they're hurting or they feel. But I, I always say in my head, because I judge no man, I, I always say, no, you don't. You don't. You feel rotten, but you don't feel that rotten. You don't feel like that. Every part of your face isn't moving in a different direction. Uh, you, don't, you don't look like something a seven-year-old made and brought it to the science fair and it fell apart while you were trying to set it up. You know, you don't, you don't, you might feel, I'm not saying you don't feel like crap, but you don't feel like that, you know. Um, and again, I'm, I, uh, I, I know what they mean, but I haven't felt new since I've been new. And, um, uh, and if you feel like new, you're new, that new, you probably aren't spending that much time with new guys because... Uh, Man, they're uh, they're very very interesting people, and uh, I uh, um, I like to uh, uh, welcome all the newcomers to AA. If you know, there, there are so many new people here tonight. I feel blessed to be able to share at this meeting, and uh, I, I, if you're new, I want I like to tell you I have a great life today. I'm sure that thrills the crap out of you if you're new. Uh, I'm sure, you're just overwhelmed with joy for me. And because uh, I know how happy I was for the people having a good time when I got here, you know, and I'd sit <laughs> and I'd hear him talk about this, the life and the wife and the, you know, and the, the house. And I would think to myself, maybe you'll go home and maybe your house will blow up. Right? Maybe your wife will blow up and we'll see how spiritual you are next week. If you're bored... I want to welcome you to AA. I want to tell you my favorite story about being bored in Alcoholics Anonymous. Happened to this friend of mine named Jeff D. He used to go to my whole home group, the North Hollywood group. And when he was a newcomer, a couple weeks sober, he was shifting around in his chair at this meeting at our home group, and his sponsor said, what's the matter? Jeff said, I'm bored. His sponsor said, well, you know why you're bored. Jeff said, no. His sponsor said, you're bored because you're boring. That's, that's why you're bored. And it was like an acid moment for him. He went, wow, wow. It freaked him out. You know, he thought, what a cool thing to say to a newcomer, you know. And uh, he could hardly wait till the newcomer told him they were bored. <laughs> Thirteen years later, no newcomer has told him that they're bored. He's at our home group, at the North Hollywood group, with this young lady who was new, and she was shifting around in her seat, and he said, what's the matter? She said, I'm bored. He said, well, you know why you're bored. She said, yeah, because I'm with you. That's why I'm bored. <laughs> so if you're new and you're bored, welcome to AA. If you're a drug addict, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're a, a dope fiend, which is somehow worse than any of us, welcome to AA. Uh, I heard a guy a while ago uh, identify as a, uh, he said, my name is Blah, and I'm a crack monster. Whoa, crack monster, that's scary, crack monster. I wonder, do they have like a Halloween costume for crack monster? Um, and uh, there's a new exotic group I'd like to welcome today, the Tweakers. Very, very excited that you're here. There you go. Yeah, uh, you forgot why you're clapping, did you? You did. I'm clapping. I don't know why I'm clapping. And I love the Tweakers. They stay quick for a while. Long while, they wear their clothes out from the inside, and uh, they're easy, they're spooked easily. <laughs> what I'd like to urge you to do is to catch alcoholism. Catch the dreaded alcoholism. We'd love to give it to you. I didn't have it when I came to AA. Didn't have alcoholism when I came here. Caught alcoholism in AA meetings. The infection entered through the ear. 
It infected me. I began to infect others around me. But I could not possibly have been alcoholic when I got here. I'm Jewish and Jews don't drink. Because it might dull the pain. Yeah, you don't want to waste any agony opportunity that presents itself. And one of the first guys that saved my life in Alcoholics Anonymous in this first home group, which I'll tell you about in a little bit that I joined, the Edge of the World group, that was my name for it. Um, <laughs> uh, the first, one of the first guys that saved my life was a guy who said, he, he identified, he said, my name's John, I'm a, uh, an ex-Catholic, which means that I don't believe in God and I'm therefore uh, positive God is going to come kill my ass for feeling that way. And I said, I'm going to sit next to John. I, because I, I had been introduced to an Old Testament God when I was a kid who got your ass no matter what. He got you. He turned your wife to salt and killed your goat and put a finger in your eye and he got your ass and that was it. And there was no hiding, nowhere, no time. Got you, got you, got you. <clears throat> Had to learn a foreign language to talk to him. Got your ass kicked for worshipping him the way we worshipped him. It was a bad deal all the way around. I dropped a, 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 the, the Jewish Bible, which is the Torah, when I was a kid. And the rabbi said, pick it up and kiss it. I said, it never kissed me. He threw me out, you know. I uh, <laughs> said, you seem to have the exact same right and wrong answers as the, as the kid who sits next to you on this test in Hebrew school. Can you explain that? And I said, miracle. <laughs> so I didn't last long, and my stay was unappreciated. And um, I want to thank all the other speakers. We got in late last night and didn't catch Friday night. Well, uh, and uh, I uh, heard a uh, uh, great talk this morning. And... Um, you're going to hear my friend Sharon tomorrow, who is a great buddy and a great, great member of AA. And uh, if you didn't hear the speaker this morning, he talked about his sponsor, a guy named Tom I, and I agree with him. I think he's just one of the most extraordinary members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, if you ever haven't gotten a chance to hear uh, Tom speak, take some time and do it. He's an extraordinary guy. He and I uh, got to attend an AA function down in the Caribbean together. I went snorkeling with him and was charged by his wife with the mission of bringing him back alive, which I did do. And while we were down there, my wife was in the general area where all the drunks were hanging out, and this new guy said, she heard him say to another guy, geez, I was out sailing with Scott Redman in a sailboat, and in the middle of our conversation, he threw himself into the ocean. And the guy just wouldn't shut up. It was just blah, 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 blah. And I went overboard. I just, I threw myself into the waves. And I had this incredible feeling of peace as the water enveloped me. And it just got completely quiet. So now I put a basin of water near the phone. So when I talk to new guys, I can just dunk my head in that water anytime I want. Um, I grew up in uh, New York City, uh, in the Bronx, in New York. Nobody from the Bronx. Wait, no? Oh, you're not here with the... No. Witness protection program? Nothing? No? <laughs> my family uh, wa was and is absolutely nuts. Uh, my wife never believed me about my family until she met them, and my mom threw an engagement party for us, and my Aunt Rose came and wore her wig backwards. And it, <laughs> it had a bun on it, and it was uh, right out there. And it was, it, was <laughs> it was not a mistake. It was a look she was going after. And uh, if you got anything for free in my family, it meant it was stolen. Uh, my Uncle Jack <laughs> was a welder and used to get free bales of steel wool. What do you think? What do you, what do you think? Oh, Jack, here, take a bale of steel wool. I mean, they were, but he said they were free. And um, his wife took decorating classes and made throw pillows and filled all the throw pillows with the available materials with the free steel wool. So when you, when you, that stuff works its way through on you. So when, when, when you were at their house, everybody was moving a little bit, you know. It, the whole room was like a living, pulsing, breathing thing. And, um, they're, and they're still absolutely crazy. Just a little bit ago, a year or so ago, my mom calls me and says, Honey, I got bad news for you. I said, What, Ma? She said, You know, your Aunt Lena's dead. I said, Oh, no, when? 
a year and a half ago. I said, what? She said, well, you know, your Aunt Phyllis is back in the mental institution, and she calls me and harasses me, so I haven't picked up the phone, but Phyllis died a couple of weeks ago. I started picking up the phone again. They finally reached me to tell me that Lena was dead. These are the communication skills that I was brought up with. And, and um, I, had an, <laughs> I had an uncle who was one of the top ten welterweights of the world during the 30s. His name was Izzy Redman. In 1936, he was fighting in Atlanta, Georgia. He was concerned with anti-Semitism, and he had his name changed to Izzy Goldberg so that no one would know he was Jewish. Now, I, I want to I, I tell you, these are my people. This is my genetic pool. You don't go to the, down to the bar and brag to the bartender. I'm a member of the biggest bunch of morons you ever met in your life. Um... And there was like chronic institutionalization, suicide attempts, mental and physical abuse, just awful, awful stuff. And, and if you're new here, all I've got is good news for you, because my family didn't have one single solitary thing to do with making me an alcoholic. I'm not telling you I didn't get bumped around. I got bumped around plenty, and I'm not telling you I didn't have to do anything about it. I had to do plenty about it. But you see, one of the other reasons that I wasn't alcoholic by the time I got here, in addition to the Judaism... Um, <laughs> was I had been um, in psychotherapy for 18 years. By the time I got to AA, I was going to be uh, dead, but I was going to understand it. And uh, I'm, I'm not putting therapy down. Therapy's great stuff. It says on page 133 of our book, if you need a doctor, go get one. I got no beef with therapy. I didn't understand that in therapy you got understanding, and in Alcoholics Anonymous you got for forgiveness. And without forgiveness, I would never be able to be in my life or have a life or live at all. I absolutely didn't know that. And uh, so I got no beef with therapy, but you see, I was, showing, I was trying to treat my alcoholism with psychotherapy. It's like showing up at a gunfight with a knife, you know, and just, just getting these colossal ass poundings, just, just these crushing ass poundings all the time. And I was doing good work in therapy, but I was dying. If you have alcoholism, if you have a bizarre physical reaction that makes it impossible to you, for you to control and enjoy to moderate once you begin, and if you're special and you're a drug addict, try some controlled crack smoking. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> if you have that weird physical reaction and it's coupled with some fascinating thinking, you'll hear it referred to as alcoholic thinking, it's the source of a lot of mirth at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. I love reasons to drink. I collect them. They're my favorite thing in the whole world. I have a friend named Larry who the first time he ever read our book, he read the first page of the fourth chapter, which contains a sentence which says, basically, facing an alcoholic death or a spiritual life is not always an easy decision to make. And he said to himself, well, how, how bad an alcoholic death are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not a normal reaction to that. That's, a, that's not a challenge. That's a statement of a condition, you know. <clears throat> My favorite reason to drink I have heard of up to today was a couple of years ago I, I was sponsoring this guy for about 15 minutes. And uh, he lived with his wife. He was a male prostitute and he had a gay lover. And he called me to tell me he drank. And I went... Oh, why? <laughs> and he said, without missing a beat, I caught my wife cheating on me. <laughs> now, I just want to tell you, I get that absolutely and completely, and I get that that was the product of one of two processes. That was either, that could have just been just a gem, just a pearl, just an occasional hunter inspiration. He had to come up with something, and boom, there it was, fully cut cloth. Or that was the product of weeks in the hamster wheel, weeks in the rat's maze, weeks of hard, diligent work of moving the whole world, moving the whole world so it could just fall in slot by slot. I know I'm married. I know I'm a hooker with a beeper. I know I've got a gay lover, but the bitch cheated on me! I'm out of here! <laughs> you got to move the universe. You've got to rearrange your life and everything in it to accommodate the walk to the drink. I cannot stop taking once I begin it. And when that process happened in me, I began to suffer from this horrible cancer of the soul 
the soul sickness that ate me up from the inside and left me hollow and insane and alone. And if you've got that, and you're bringing that to psychotherapy, unless your therapist puts on a black robe and shakes a chicken foot over your head, <laughs> you're pissing into a gale force wind. And I did it once a week, and I paid 110 bucks to take that leak. <laughs> so uh, I grew up in the Bronx, nuts from the word go, took that first drink. I'm allergic, my hand's in the air. But I didn't want to be a drunk. So what I did was it was kind of like uh, applying, uh, being refused by the French uh, resistance, so I became a Nazi. I, I went and tried to be a greaser, and I completely flunked greaser school. Because uh, I'm uh, a weenie. And uh, I, uh, I'm a physically large weenie, which is worse, really worse, to be this big because then people want to prove you're a weenie and you're always willing to admit it at the get, you know? <laughs> so I was being brought into this uh, 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 gang by George Rosenstein in the Bronx, and, and he said, Look, and all the guys around me in the circle said, Look, we just, and they, they, were, they stole cars. And, and, uh, so we just do Chevy Biscaynes and Fairlanes. They had a, a steering column with ignition on the column, and it said on, off, and lock. So he said, if the car's on lock, just shine the car, find another car. If it's on uh, off, just take your house key, put it in, and you're off. And I wanted to make my bones, so I looked around and said, uh, what if it's on, on? He said, someone's in the car, you moron. And... Uh, so I, I went across the street and joined the hippies, and uh, the questions weren't really hard, and w after they'd ask it, they'd forget what the question was, so it didn't really much matter. And I achieved very quickly with them. I got right up to the top of the pyramid there, uh, um, got addicted to drugs, got arrested, got asked to leave a bunch of educational institutions. Um, I, I just zoomed to the top. and. Um, um, I had a, a father who uh, uh, was a bartender for 35 years, uh, uh, never more, made more than $10,000 a year, uh, and my brother and I never went to school with ripped clothing, and we never missed a meal. And uh, I made tons of money. I made what he made in the year I'd make in a month. And my children went to school with ripped clothing all the time and missed meals all the time, and I thought my father was the biggest loser I ever met. And... Um, I, uh, once I got with the hippies, I, uh, I, I avoided the alcoholism uh, with uh, marijuana. I'd like to welcome all the pot smokers here tonight. You, you remember, wow. All right, take it back. I don't welcome the pot smokers here tonight. Uh, you remember, wow, right? Wow. Wow. Right after wow usually came... What? What? Wow, what, wow, what, wow, what? Watching a pot smoker is like watching a dog try to run on a linoleum. There, there's, there's like a lot of activity, but no movement. They just can't, they can't get a claw in the rug, you know? And I, I, uh, I kicked uh, uh, marijuana with pills. I, I, was, I triumphed over pills with cocaine. Uh, cocaine is an excellent drug. It's, it's particularly good for sex if you enjoy sex from the Neolithic period. And... Uh, 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 but I overcame that cocaine problem with heroin. Heroin's a very dark, complicated, artistic drug. Then you cross a line and become a vomiting pig. It's just a little hop, skip, and a jump. And uh, there was alcohol on the table every day. Uh, but this was my way of uh, avoiding catching alcoholism. And I almost, uh, almost avoided it and almost died from it. And uh, I was just about 20 years old, and I uh, shot some dope because I was awake. And uh, <laughs> went to hitchhike from the Bronx down to my apartment in Manhattan. My aunt and uncle picked me up on the highway and took me to the hospital. My father had had a massive stroke, and I was loaded at the hospital, and I couldn't be there the night my dad died. I couldn't be there for him. I couldn't be there for my mother or my brother. And um, uh, probably a couple of times in a kid's life, you ought to be there for his old man. This was one of them, and I couldn't answer the bell. The curtain was down. The sound of the heart machine couldn't even get through. And that night, my father was lost to me. I couldn't talk about him. I couldn't think about him. I couldn't look at a picture of him. Anytime I even heard the sound of a heart machine, it sounded like a personal indictment of my collapse as a man, a brother, and a son. 
And I knew exactly what had happened to me that night. I knew what was wrong, and I knew how to fix it. And what had happened was it was needles and heroin, and all I had to do to not be the guy that couldn't be there the night that his dad died, all I had to do was very simply never put a needle in my arm again. And I didn't, not for 13 years. Shortly after that, I achieved, I've suffered from chronic success my entire life. Um, and I, uh, shortly after that, I uh, achieved one of the dreams I had as a kid growing up in the Bronx and visiting Manhattan once or twice a year. I got to act in a Broadway play, uh, in a musical. I got to sing and swagger around a Broadway stage. And was I not it? Yes, I was. And um, before the show one night, a new usherette with long brown hair walked in. Uh, I didn't talk to her. I just looked at her. I didn't know her name. I walked back into the dressing room and stood up on a chair and said to the cast, if anybody talks to the new usherette with long brown hair, I'll break all the bones in your hands and feet. Um, she saw in my biography that I was a filmmaker and came in the next day with a big book. that didn't, We had not said word one to each other with a big book that said Orson Welles across it and sat in the back the next day so I'd have a way to strike up a conversation with her. And we've been married 24 years. <laughs> she became very, very ill from prolonged exposure to me. And uh, um, I thought she was exotic, too. You know, she was from Detroit. And I, uh, I, I had never been out of the Bronx. I thought there were, like, palm trees in Detroit, you know. And, uh, and uh, we had a great time. We were young. I was acting on Broadway. We're in arguably one of the most exciting cities in the world with the world at our feet. And we didn't know that we, uh, we were just a couple of dogs trying to run on linoleum, you know. And, and uh, uh, we had a real good time for a while. And, uh, and then Nancy started really getting bad. And, um, uh, <laughs> and uh, we got so sick. At one point, a guy lent, a, lent us his car, and uh, we sold it. And um, I, will, <laughs> I will never forget that guy's voice on the phone, you know, as long as I live. You sold my car? I lent, that's like house-sitting for someone, and they come back, and you're in escrow, you know? And, and, uh, and, and the alcoholic life had become the only normal one. We didn't have rent. Big duh there, you know? And I looked into my wife's eyes, and I said, Honey, I am so sick of being a punk, irresponsible kid. I don't want to borrow money. Let's stand on our own two feet. Fell the car, and she, and she looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, "Let's do." Now I want to tell you, I understand how we were able to do that. We were able to do that for the same reason that I love dental surgery. Now I got to tell you something. About eight months ago, I got a hand surgery on my hand, this hand, and um. And the doctor said, Mr. Redmond, now I'm uh, 15 years sober when he tells me. He says, Mr. Redmond, you're going to uh, have to have a general anesthetic. I said, general anesthetic? <laughs> wow! Normal people do not get excited about general anesthetic. They don't. I'll tell you why. You're, you're asleep for it. You are generally anesthetized for general anesthetic. But you see, here's the deal. When they give it to you, they say, count backwards from 100. So you go, 199. I love 99. It sounds like you like 99, too. But here's the deal. I won't trade my life in for 99 anymore. And here's the other deal. I was able to sell that car for the same reason that I got excited about initially, until I spoke to my sponsor, about the general anesthetic. I leave out the middle. I leave out the surgery. I go from announcement of dental surgery. Most people don't go, hoo dental surgery. I go from the announcement of the dental surgery to the painkiller. I leave out the sutures, the blood, and the pain. I go from, let's do the right thing, sell the car. I, I leave out grand theft auto. I, I, I leave out <laughs> forging the pink slip and looking behind me for the cops every day for the next God knows how long. If you're new here, welcome to the middle. 
We're real big on the middle. You could say obsessed with the middle, by God. Um, Nancy came home one day and I had had this idea to cook something, but I died in the middle of the idea. Uh, I, uh, she came in, I was laying on the floor, the stove was on, I had a pan full of eggs in my hand and I was blue. And uh, she tapped me with her foot and said, how are you? <laughs> and I looked up at her and I said, exhausted. <laughs> Frankly, I'm exhausted. And she went to the phone and uh, called the doctor and said, there's an empty vial, there's an empty bottle. And the doctor said, why are you calling me? Why are you calling? Why aren't you calling? There's a blue Jew on the floor of your kitchen. Why haven't you called the paramedics? When my wife tells this story, I get a little queasy at this part because she always goes, uh, I hung up and uh, did some cleaning. And, and then she called another doctor for a second opinion. And um, we were married a couple of years, and our beautiful son Michael was born. He was really welcomed into the world. We were surrounded by friends and family, and there were a ton of phone calls, and uh, we were right in the middle of our community. And two years and nine months later, when Jesse was born, there were no friends, no phone calls, no family. We had been completely isolated by the disease of alcoholism in just two years and nine months. Jesse was born with a condition called transitive tachypnea of the heart. And I didn't even want to go to the hospital because it reminded me of my old man. And um, now, I'll tell you, this is when you're supposed to be with your people. And my wife was all alone. Nobody would even visit. It wasn't that people didn't love us. It just hurt too much to be around us. The ice around our heart had become so thick, it had just repelled everybody that we knew and everybody that loved us. And uh, Jesse was up in an incubator. Nancy was all alone in the room. And this doctor called me that night and said, Mr. Redmond, your wife is in a tremendous amount of psychological duress. She's alone on a maternity ward. Kid's up in an incubator. We need you down here. And I said, look, I, I don't, you know, I never met this doctor before. I said, I can't find anybody to, to watch my two-year-old son. And this doctor who I had never met before said, I tell you what, I'll give you my address and you can take your kid over to my house. My husband will watch him so you can come down. And I said no. I had no, there was no way I could possibly accept this woman's generosity. I think I would have had to look at my life one more time and say, how do, how do you get here? How does this happen? I would have, it would have been another horrible naked lunch where I was just caught staring at the end of my fork saying, what? What? And... Um, and, you know, my, my wife's favorite line in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and, uh, is when Bill talks about a horrible spot he had gotten himself into. He describes his life as uh, waiting for his wife to leave her purse so he can steal from it, dragging a mattress down from the upper floors of their home so that he wouldn't kill himself, and cursing himself uh, a coward because all he could do is stare at the poison in his medicine cabinet and not swallow it. And then it says, little were we to know this was to continue for three more years. We hit a bottom, we take out a shovel, and we start digging. You know? and, uh, um, and it was to continue from, from the day Jesse was born, three more years for us. Three more, more years of my life running out between my fingers like a handful of water over and over again. One day I came home, I, we had these 32-ounce tumblers, I popped a cork on a bottle of wine, I emptied the entire bottle of wine into this tumbler, and I turned around and my wife was giving me the pre-Alanon rat, rat stare, this one. And I said, what? And she said, what, what are you doing? And I looked at her and I said, I'm having a glass of wine. Can't a man have a glass of wine in his own home? <clears throat> when my son Michael was five years old, he came up to me and he said, uh, uh, we were living uh, uh, in an apartment, uh, which eventually, right after I, I got sober, the landlord pulled me aside and he said, if you move, I'll lie for you. I will, <laughs> I will put anything in a letter that you want me to. If you will, go away. He wanted to pass it on. <laughs> um, 
And uh, my son, and there were some, uh, a couple of Christian families, uh, devout Christian families, so my son got wind of God, and, uh, which he wasn't getting any wind of in our home. And he came up to me, he was five years old, he said, Dad, is there anything such as God? And I looked into the eyes of my perfect five-year-old baby boy, and I said, no. I just, m- the mind reels. I can't even imagine giving worse information to a little boy. And lying. And doing something completely antithetical to what I thought I was doing. I thought I was giving him the real stuff. I thought I was saving him some skin so he wouldn't have to get played like those saps and suckers. I was giving a five-year-old the real existential line. <laughs> like he needed it. Took time from reading Sartre in order to ask me that question. And... Um, what I thought I was giving him was the real stuff and what I was actually giving him, and, and it's so beautifully pointed out, much, much more eloquently than I can ever present it in the fourth chapter of our book, that in fact I was giving him the coward's way out. In fact, I was giving him the mushiest, weakest thinking of all. And um, I, I don't know really uh, if, if you could do anything more abusive to a child. This is where I wound up a couple of months before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, the reason why I came to Alcoholics Anonymous for me was really simple. It was after 13 years, I put a needle in my arm again. All the jobs were gone. My wife was completely insane from uh, overexposure to me. Uh, Micah was making involuntary clicking noises with his throat that he couldn't stop making. He could barely read or write. He was uh, 168 IQ and he could barely write a sentence down. He was six years old. He couldn't stop grinding his teeth. His small motor skills were all screwed up and there was nothing organically wrong with him. He was so distracted from being terrified all the time, he couldn't concentrate on anything to put together a play sequence together, to put together a learning sequence together. Jesse's condition was so alarming, his preschool didn't know what to do with him. His preschool that he was being ejected out of once a week for non-payment. Um, but it was the fanciest preschool in our community. And uh, he was playing these war games that he couldn't stop playing. He couldn't stop pretending he was a robot. There's nothing wrong with those games, but he couldn't come back. And the feeling was, was that it just was too dangerous to be made out of flesh. It was just safer to be in this world that he had sent himself, and he was really having a hard time coming back. Now, I just thought I was married to a nut, and we had given birth to a bunch of a couple of mentally ill kids because she was not right and I had a lot of overwhelming personal problems because my aunt wore her wig backwards. (sighs) On April 22nd, 1985, I crossed the line I swore I would never cross again. I put a needle in my arm. Why? I don't know and frankly I don't care. I called my therapist of record that morning in my 18th year of psychotherapy, my first Jungian therapist. Never had seen one of them before. I figured that might be the key. He said to me that morning the exact same thing that the man who 12 that Carl Jung himself said to the man who 12-stepped the man who 12-stepped Bill Wilson. He said to me, there's absolutely nothing that can be done for you. I had never heard this from anybody before. I said, what? He said, the only thing that I can possibly suggest is we have you institutionalized or you attend a meeting of Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, why I went to that meeting, I do not know. Any other day, I probably would have gladly chosen the Nut Hut. I would have, it would have been, I, I've been with my people, colorful and adventurous people, and, uh, and they give you good dope in those places. And most other days, man, I would have been there in 10 seconds. Why I went to that AA meeting, I do not know. I woke up at 5 a.m. to go to a 7 a.m. meeting deep in the San Fernando Valley. I walked into this place called the Unit A, and I took one step into this clubhouse and took one look around and said, Oh, my God, Alcoholics Anonymous. How did I wind up in Alcoholics Anonymous? How lame is this? This is beyond lame. This is beyond church, beyond synagogue. This is beyond, this is beyond any plateau of lameness I ever even imagined was available to me. Alcoholics Anonymous. I couldn't believe it. And everything was a miracle. Miracle, miracle. I'm a miracle. You're a miracle. Ah, the furniture is a miracle too. And the coffee is a miracle. 
and they get right up in your face and talk this unsolicited AA crap to you at the drop of a hat. And you know the guy they sent over, he's got one tooth with a cavity, right? He's got a belt buckle large enough to serve a whole fish on, right? Do I want what you've got? No. No. But thanks for spitting on me. I really appreciate it. All right, do I come back next week with my own set of bib overalls and my issued a pair? When do we hook a rug? Right? And I know the Jew hunt's going to start any minute. I know we're going to get that, right? Come on, Jaime, strap on these antlers. Let them run. Count to ten. Poke them with a stick. I've talked at a few conferences that almost turned into a Jew hunt, by the way, but I don't know. The only reason, I hated everything about Alcoholics Anonymous. The only reason that I can even imagine that I stayed is that I was out of plans. If you are new here tonight, I pray for you that you are out of plans. If you are new and you have a plan, it's probably a butte. <laughs> Don't use your plan. Grab one of us after the meeting and tell us your plan. We want to know the plan. <laughs> That's the book I've always wanted to see, the collection of newcomer plans. <laughs> and I just kept coming back and I hated it. My wife reached out to the Al-Anon family groups and started pursuing her miracle. And I want to tell you, I don't know if this happens out here, but it happens sometimes in Los Angeles. When I was new, I'd go to certain AA clubhouses and I'd hear people uh, making uh, off-color remarks about Al-Anon at AA meetings, and it confused and it injured me because I was so proud of my wife for, uh, for doing her deal. And... Uh, uh, you know, until I stuck around long enough, and I'm not talking about good-natured jokes. God knows we tell enough good-natured jokes about uh, mean, you know, ignorant jokes. And until I stuck around long enough to find out that they were just mean and ignorant people, although I judged no man, I, I, uh, uh, it confused and it hurt me because I'd sit in my seat and go, isn't this what we're supposed to be? Isn't this like a good thing? And you know what? It is. It is. So if you're lucky enough, and you know what? Sometimes people go to the program and they find out the best thing is to be a part. And, and, it, and it's better for everybody. And sometimes they find out that, that they should stay together. We found out that we should stay together. Uh, and um, um, so if you're lucky enough uh, to have found your way there uh, and, and be enriched by it, God bless you. Uh, my, my wife had a sponsor who carried the message of the program to me before I ever heard it in Alcoholics Anonymous. We go over to that house, and there were just, it seemed like a thousand people were there all the time. And she never fought with Nancy. Nancy would call up and say, oh, they're idiots. And Ruby would go, yeah, yeah, they are. Come on over. <laughs> they're idiots. They're morons. Come on over. We got a new girl. Come on over. We're doing, we're cooking. Come on over. We're all putting on makeup. I mean, that's just what, that's all, in our kid, we had a lot of rules in our house because we were out of control and dying. Got to have a lot of rules. Kids can only eat health food. So every, wife, my wife, every morning when my wife would say, you've had your granola, now get in the car with Dr. Death. <laughs> but you're going to die healthy. <laughs> and they had all, we had all these rules about what they could eat, what they could watch on TV. They'd go to Ruby's house. She had one refrigerator with crap in it. She'd sit them down in front of the TV and let them watch whatever they wanted, and they would just oh. Oh, they love her. They still love her. They're grown men. She sends them $5 on every birthday. And they just love her to pieces. They love her to pieces. And uh, I'm going to apologize for my language, but my wife's Al-Anon sponsor used it, so I'll just tell you when they were li real little. You also couldn't curse in our house. You could overdose and die, but you couldn't, you, you could not use a four-letter word as you were going and asphyxiating and dying. And uh, she called him over and said, Boys, if you say thank you, you get more shit. And they went, Aah! And they always said thank you, and they still say thank you today. And Ruby's husband, who is now, I guess, 35 years sober, Milton, called the boys over at a function at, at their house, called them over. Uh, I don't know where this came from. They were real little boys. Called them over, and Milton whispered to them, 
boys, your parents don't know shit. <laughs> and the kids went, oh, we suspected, but now it's confirmed. And that's like, just, they, lo <laughs> they love Ruby, and they love Milton, and they love Al-Anon, and they love AA. Um, I made a decision with my sons, which does not work for a lot of families, but I made a decision to not bring them to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Uh, some of the meetings I was attending to, I didn't want them to hear the stuff that was going on. Uh, well, quite often, I didn't want to hear the stuff that was going on. Uh, so um, as a result, my children uh, grew up without AA being a burden on them. And, and again, I do not knock people who bring uh, their kids to AA meetings. I know that we have to sometimes, and I know that some kids really benefit from it. That was, this is not a judgment call at all. I'm just, I've been asked to tell my story. What the hell, I'll go ahead and do it. And that was uh, true for me and my sons since they were little boys. And um, we started making a beginning. And I, I stuck around Alcoholics Anonymous for six months. Uh, enjoyed the gift of step none. <laughs> and uh, the glorious gift of step none, which of course is nothing. And, uh, I, uh, uh, and I was suffering from untreated al alcoholism. I didn't know what that was. Uh, but I tell you, if you're not drinking, and, uh, which is a great treatment for alcoholism. Drinking works. It kills you, unfortunately. But, man, it is, a, it is a great treatment. It brings great relief to this alcoholic. If you're not drinking and you're not using the program of action outlined in our book, <laughs> it is such a... Uh, it's, it's, and, and you look in the mirror and there's a vein pumping like a garden hose on your forehead, <laughs> feeding your brain like a, a, a breeder reactor, you know? Um, I don't know. Uh, and I, I knew I was going to drink because uh, I had seen the AA drill hundreds of times since I had come in. Guys came in, did the work and changed. Guys came in, didn't do the work, didn't change, got sick, got sicker, got to the podium, shared their gift with us and shared their ass right out of the door or stayed here and became columns of human sewage and sexual predators, although I judge no man. And uh, again, I, I judge no man because I'm just too damn spiritually developed. And... Uh, so I knew I was going to drink, and I broke down, and I asked the guy to sponsor me, and he was a great guy. And he asked me to read some uh, material from the big book of AA, and he invited me over to his house, and he read chapter 5 to me, and spent hours with me for fun and for free, and I couldn't figure out why. I didn't know what the hell this guy wanted. And he read chapter 5, and he took me through the first three steps, and he showed me how to do a fourth step from the big book of AA. And I will tell you, I didn't have a burning bush experience, but I stopped feeling like I was stealing someone's chair here. It took me three months to do my inventory. And you know what? I will tell you. In our book, it doesn't say write a little, read a little, write a little, read a little, because sometimes guys will work on the inventory. They'll say, just, can, can I just give you what I got? I always encourage them to wait. Because I think these guys knew that if you sat down and went over the whole mess, if you sat down and discussed the whole sordid affair, I'm resentful at them. I'm resentful at me for resenting them. I'm resentful at them for watching me resent them. And I've had sex with all of them, right? <laughs> and I'm scared of all of them. What does this have to do with alcoholism? It is alcoholism. It's the soul sickness that will keep you in the cycle of spree and remorse until you're dealt out. You're traded out. And all we're going to do is, just like that guy did to me that day, he shared some spiritual tools, not spiritual weapons, spiritual tools that would help me transfer from the cycle of spree and remorse to the cycle of surrender and commitment, which is an incredible state of grace, an incredibly powerful thing, which is just as and more powerful, and we know that. And um, I, I went and read it to him when I was nine months sober, and it was a mess. And the, I didn't have a burning bush there either. I just knew I was in, I, this was bad. And uh, I did six and seven for the first time, which had become sort of my working template with my relationship with God. And then it came time to do my eight-step list. Now, this is, I want to share with you the, my favorite reading of the eight-step I've ever heard. I heard it at my old home group, and I was pretty young in sobriety, and I've never heard it read better. It was read by a guy who I've never seen since that night. His name was Nino. He had a heavy New York accent. And he was there with a recovery group. He had a hospital bracelet on, and he had never read Chapter 5 before. Didn't know the material. And he got up to the, the eighth step, and he read, made a list of all those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Jesus Christ!
And he looked out into the room as if to say, Have you seen this? Does anybody know what's in here? Or are you just reading this crap, you know? It was the most beautiful, the purest reading of the step I have ever heard. Because I, I want to tell you, man, I didn't see nothing but that step. When I saw these steps, I said, no, 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 no. Not those people. Not that much. Not that, that money? No. I would not have taken that much money if I knew I was going to have it give it back. <laughs> Number one, right? Am I right or am I wrong? Not the car. When I called that guy to pay him back for the car, his, his voice was exactly the same. He said, you're paying me back? <laughs> well, if you're new, don't worry about it. It's eight steps for, away from where you are anyway. And eight's really not the annoying one. Nine. Nine. <laughs> so I did my eight-step list. I had to put my dad down there and my wife and my kids. And I had to not put myself on it. And I don't condemn or judge anybody who puts themselves on their eight-step list. I have, I have sponsees who put themselves on the top of their eight-step list. I don't tell them how to put their eight-step list together. It ain't my eight-step list. I had to not be anywhere near my eight-step list. The pro I was going to have to just make do with the promises. And, uh, um, uh, and I had been uh, making amends to myself at your expense my entire life. And I want to tell you again... This is not a judgment call. I know people put themselves on their eight-step list, and I do not think it's wrong. Again, I've just been asked to tell my story, and I had to not be on there. And I struggled with that, and it made me feel good that I wasn't on there. But the bad news is I didn't know what the hell I was going to do about the people that were on there. The money was easy, even though I'm still paying it off 15 years later. I was in pretty heavy. Um, when I went to visit the IRS, the guy actually had a picture of me and my family on his desk, which made me a little nervous. <laughs> kind of pissed me off. Uh, um, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do about my father because I tried, uh, uh, I tried going to the grave. I, I uh, thought about the letter, and none of it worked for me. So I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was going to do about my kids. What was I going to do? I told you about the mess they were in when I came in AA. I didn't know what I was going to do about my wife. And my sponsor refused to tell me what to do. He just said, do your job in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm glad that he didn't give me a task that I could have done and dispensed with it. I'm blessed. Now, did he do that with all the sponsees? Frankly, I don't know. I know that he did it with me. I'm grateful that he did it with me. He said, do your job and see what happens. So I started doing my job. I had to start doing a lot of lame, lame crap in AA. I had to start, like, showing up to flag football games, coaching Little League. I had to spend some dope money on a, on a lunchbox my kid wanted, you know. Um, the first time I went to a Little League game, I go, my wife shows up at the game, looks over at the first base stands and just falls down laughing. Because there's everybody in the first base stands, and there's me in the sun pissed off alone, you know. I'm here, I'm doing my job, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Going up and down two hat sizes in the sun, just psychotic, you know. The kids are looking at me going, look, Mr. Redmond's going to blow up, man, look, look. <laughs> it took me a couple of years for the voices to diminish in volume and number to just go and sit in the first base stands, to just be at my sobriety station. It took a long time, but I kept showing up. And uh, the, uh, one, one year, my son Jesse received uh, one. And, and the deal was is, uh, to get the boys out of this dilemma they were in. Because, uh, you see, I had to do some stuff I didn't want to do. I had to go into school and say, look, my kid's doing poorly, and he's a problem because he's very ill because he's been living with me. We've been very ill. Can you help us? I want to tell you something. Not once since I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous have I gone to truly ask for help without bullying people to just ask for help and been told no. It's never happened to me. They said, of course we'll help you. Let's test the boys. They tested them. They got uh, resources cut loose for them. They said, look, get them, in a, get them into sports. And now I had 40 bucks to pay for Little League, so I'd get them into sports. I could buy them a glove, you know. Get them into music. Get this small motor stuff. So, um, so that's what we did, you know. I went out and I bought Jesse, he wanted to play drums. I, uh, I bought him a little drum pad, 10 bucks. And I was so proud of myself for buying this little simple thing. And I went back to my home group and bragged about it because I'm supposed to. 
You know, and within two weeks, Jesse had the AA drum set showed up at our house. You know, I had a lot of burnout drummers in my home group at that time. So guys, guys are showing up with cymbals going, dude, dude, dude. And like in two weeks, he had like he had Motley Crue's drum set in our, our bedroom. He'd sit at it and disappear. Couldn't even see him behind it. And uh, Jesse had been playing baseball for a couple of years and... Uh, I was at a ball game one day. By this time, I was in the stands. And my son received one of the greatest single compliments I believe any human being can receive on the planet. He was intentionally walked. <laughs> Doesn't get much better than that. And uh, if you're a baseball fan, you, or if you're not a baseball fan, that means that they're scared of you and they want to get to the weenie behind you, so they put you on base. And, you know, he, he didn't want to be a lame. You don't want to jump up and down. He just laid the bat down and ran up the first baseline. And all the way up the first baseline, he looked at me because I'm at my sobriety station, and he just shot me just this much stuff. Now, you don't want to be lame. It's the old man. You don't want to spoil him just a little bit on the way up. And I could have missed the whole thing. Like Norm said, by a second and an inch, I could have missed the entire thing. And I'm not telling you my kid got walked because I'm sober. Kids come from bad stuff, worse stuff than my kids come from, and they make a life for themselves. All I'm telling you is I was at my sobriety station because I was sober. And I've been with enough guys who have been drunk on their kid's birthday again. And I tell them about the day that my kid got walked. I was there. My children have received 15 appropriate birthday gifts on the day of their birthday that they have wanted. Not once in 15 years have they received the day after radioactive guilt gift from the only place that would take a hot check from me. Here, son, here's some drywall. All the, all the kids are loving the drywall. It's Pokemon drywall. And a potted palm, too. Here you go. All the four-year-olds are loving the potted palms. <laughs> And what's the result? The result is Alcoholics Anonymous. The result is this afternoon I take a walk up to the Missouri State Capitol and I walk up and down the street and there's this basketball tournament and the community's out and I feel part of everything. I feel part of everything because this is my gateway. This is the gateway that introduced me to everything, to the whole world. I don't go out there and feel like I'm with the, the earthlings and got to get back here. I get here and you put me right in the firing line of life. It's the most wonderful, wonderful feeling in the world to go up there and watch people getting off on their kids. And, and, you know, and, then I, you know, and then you can tell the people who can't do it. The people who just used to be like me, just cut out from the pack, leaning up against the wall with a smirk. You know? And... Um, So our family kept moving forward, and, and, and uh, we, uh, we had a lot of trouble, a lot of problems. Uh, our, our, I, uh, our sons had a really rough time at first, and I was sober a couple of years, and I was making the boys uh, lunch, and I told you how scared Micah was, you know, and, and I said, oh, what do you want on your hot dog? And must, Micah said, I want mustard, onions, and lettuce. And I said, lettuce? He said, oh, okay, I don't want lettuce. And he walked away, he was eight, and he came back about 45 minutes later, and he looked at me directly in the eyes, and um, I'm not altering one syllable. He said to me, I will never again allow your opinion of what I want affect what I ask for. <laughs> so I asked him to sponsor me at that point. <laughs> what, what's that? What the hell is that? What is that? A couple of years after that, Jesse got, uh, he broke his wrist in a schoolyard accident in a, in a growth plane. If you know the way kids grow, uh, they have cartilage that turns into bone, and if it gets damaged at all and it gets set, it can't be disturbed. It's very important that it not get buffeted around. They're brothers, so they're beating the crap out of each other in 15 minutes after I get him back from the hospital. And I got right up in Micah's face, and I screamed and yelled at him because I had to let him know this is a limit. This is not something I could repeat 11 times. This was it. Can't mess with your brother. That's it. He walks away from me, goes into his room, slams the door. Slam the door. Slam the door. So I got the dad tick going now, you know. He slammed the door. So I go to the door and I open the door. And before I can unload on him, he looks at me and says, hold it, hold it. I didn't say you were wrong out there. You were right. But a big guy just got in my face and screamed and yelled. I didn't tell you you were wrong. 
Don't tell me I can't be mad. Okay. Okay. What the hell is that? That's exactly what he has watched his mother and I try to do with varying degrees of success and failure over all those years. Try to overcome a fear of confrontation and tell somebody what I, how I feel without telling them what to do. To try to stop playing God with people and stay in my own life and develop a, a relationship with a higher power and move forward. I mean, it, it says in our book, the, if you want to take step three, you, the first thing you have to do is quit playing God. And if I can find a way to do that and make it part of my heart and part of my life and part of my reaction to the things and people around me, <clears throat> I can't go wrong. And my, I saw it in my kids, I saw it in my wife, I saw it in them before I saw it in myself. And uh, I came home from speaking at an AA meeting one night, and uh, I think I saved everybody in Covina that particular evening. And uh, <laughs> Micah was a young teenager at the time, and I said to my wife, how you doing? And she said, uh, I'm okay, but your son's having a bad acid trip. <laughs> I said, well, I'm, I, he can't possibly be having a bad acid trip. I'm Scott Redman. Would you like to listen to some of my tapes? I, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> no, he was playing with a headless doll under a black light in his room, and he had, uh, in fact, had a bad. So I went in. I said a little prayer, and I came into the room, and I put my arms around my son, and I said, "I love you, and I'm going to stay with you. And this is a pill, and it's going to wear off." And then I called the members of AA. I called my sponsor. I called a member of Alcoholics Anonymous who's a psychiatrist. Uh, medicine was prescribed. AA members picked it up, dropped it off at the house. I said goodnight to the psychiatrist, and he said, no, nah, I'm not going to go to sleep until Micah goes to sleep. And he stayed up and talked to my kid until he went to bed. You guys never told me that my family would not have problems, ever. You told me that I would never be alone, ever, 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 for the rest of my life. And if all else fails and you're not around and you're not in, then I can go to the last paragraph of Chapter 3. And... Uh, I couldn't find anybody to watch Micah the night that his brother was sick in the hospital and the night that Micah was sick, AA was all over him like a cheap suit. They were all over him like a wet blanket. They smothered him. And I don't know if Micah's got a problem or not. He went on to have a very successful life. He uh, graduated high school uh, and uh, um, uh, went down to uh, Chiapas, Mexico to work with the Zapatista revolutionaries. <laughs> wow. Uh, and like his politics or not, he's out doing it. You know, he's out doing it. And, and, you know, during the 60s, I smoked a lot of dope, couldn't get out of the living room. He's, he's doing it, you know. And um, he's, uh, he's an extraordinary human being. He's my hero. He's done some remarkable things in his life. And a couple of years ago, he was uh, babysitting for a, a, a couple on the program. And this guy said to him, what do you think of hearing your dad talk in AA? And Micah said, uh, uh, you know, I, I have no opinion on it. I'm not a member and I don't really care much. He said, all I can tell you is since I'm a very, very little boy, the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon have taken very, very good care of me and never once has any of them insisted that I believe what they believe. What an extraordinary thing to say about us. What an extraordinary compliment for a group of people involved in a spiritual endeavor. What, what, it, 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 it's one of the most beautiful expressions of what Dr. Bob said. If you take all of our 12 principles and boil them down to their essence, you will wind up with service and love. And this time of spiritual propriety, of, of all of that stuff, to hear that come from his mouth was really one of the most beautiful compliments I've ever heard from, about Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, when I was a couple of years sober, I uh, had a, a writing job for 20th Century Fox, and um, I uh, was being considered to uh, write a situation comedy. And um, I was uh, sponsoring some guys. I was kind of becoming a spiritual Goliath. And I, uh, I thought at that time that if I got this job directing these situation comedies, that, it that the men I sponsored would really benefit from it because they would see how AA worked <laughs> in, in my life. I went mad, <laughs> and I, I uh, didn't get the job, and I didn't get the job, and I almost drank, and I went to my sponsor, and I told him what I had happened. I was humiliated, and he said, uh, well, I guess you have the show business God, 
And I said, what? He said, well, what keeps you sober? I said, God. He said, so God keeps you sober, and you didn't get a show business job, and you almost drank, so I guess you have the show business God, and he has abandoned you utterly. <laughs> so I had to sit down and I had to write a 10-step because I was resentful at this company for not giving me the job and I was resentful at myself for drinking. And, and Don said to me, you know what, when you do this and you do 6 and 7, because humbly ask him to remove these defects. Humbly isn't, take him if you can, big guy. <laughs> humbly isn't, take him, you rotten. Humbly is, Pop, I, I'm, I, I've had it. Can you help me? When I drew close to him, he revealed himself to me. Will you do my work? I'll do your work. What is it? He said, you better have a talk with him about what you're going to have to do to stay sober. And when I did 6 and 7 that day, I said, Pop, I've had it. I'll do anything to stay sober. I will do anything for a living. I'll do anything for a living. Any job, just keep me sober. And within three months, I was working as a cook on a catering truck. And I, I, I looked up to God and I said, not this. Not in." I, I didn't, we've had a grotesque misunderstanding. I did not, I didn't mean this. Now in L.A., when they make a movie or a TV show, they hire a caterer, you follow the crew around, and you make a lot of dough. It's a teamster job, you're on a vehicle on a movie set, you make a lot of money. But I'm Scott Redman. So the, the first movie that I cater, the executive producer and star of the movie is a guy I've worked with in the industry. And he sticks his head on the kitchen truck that morning and he says, Can I have a burrito? Scott? And I said, what's happening, babe? And he, he said, is this your truck? I said, no, but it's my spatula. <laughs> I went home and I called my sponsor and I said, we're really getting the gift now. Yeah. Man, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. We're really, really getting the gift of sobriety now. He said, sounds like you've got a resentment. What, do they go to workshops to learn this stuff? It's unbelievable. <laughs> I'm resentful at Scott for working on the kitchen truck. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. A five-bagger for sure. <laughs> Resentment's no big deal. It's just the source of all spiritual disease, the great destroyer of all alcoholics. It'll cut you off from the sunlight of the spirit, drag your ass out, and kill you dead. But don't be alarmed. No biggie. I'm going to die because I don't dislike working on the kitchen truck. I hate it. I re-experience this hatred in a way that eats my brain and my heart and turns my life black and throws me out of my own life. There's not even any room for me in my own life. When my head hits the pillow at night, it becomes a rotisserie. I am consumed by it. So what is it in me? What is it in me? God... Magic wand time, blue skies. God's got a magic wand. He comes and touches me on that. What poison in me, if it was removed, would this resentment be gone? I have false pride. I'm ashamed. I'm impatient. I'm ungrateful. I'm making dough. I'm not trusting in God. I'm playing God. Things aren't going according to the Scott Redman program, a fabulous program. I'm a people pleaser and I'm a mind reader. And this is the list I had to bring to my maker and I had to do it all the time because I kept... So I wound up serving people who had been my assistant directors. I wound up uh, uh, serving actors and actresses I had directed in soap operas and TV shows. I had, and I had, I wrote tense, and I used to come back to the home group with a new tale of humiliation every week. The guys would go, ah, ha, 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 tears streaming down there. <clears throat> and I was able to help some people who felt they had fallen from a height when they came to AA. They didn't understand the top rank here as child of God. And once you achieve that, you have no place to fall. I started showing up and giving them a dime for their nickel. I got proud of it. And guess what? My kids, they were more excited about me being a cook than anything else. Jesse asked me to teach him how to cook. We go to the market every week and pick out what was fresh and cook together. It gave us a whole new dimension to our, our uh, relationship. And... Um, I had a friend, Paul, who had felt he had fallen from a lofty height when he came into AA, and he used to say this prayer. He'd say, Father, I'm willing to do anything if you keep me sober, but don't let it be as bad as what you did to Scott. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I was cooking for a couple of years, and I got an overture made to me by a company named Ketchum Public Relations in New York for this big-time comedy writing job. And I've been doing this long enough, so I figured, now, this... If I get this, th now my sponsees really will 
Right? They're gonna, this is going to be great for them because they will have seen me suffer and now prosper thusly. Well, my brain blew up in about two weeks from that thing. And I went to my sponsor. I told him about it. I wrote about it. I released it. I was fine with it. A couple of days later, I got a call from Catching Public Relations. I had done this videotape for him. They said, look, you don't have the job. And I was fine with it. I had already gone through the whole thing. And then my company called me and said, you know, there's some, we want you to uh, cater some commercials up in Lake Arrowhead in the mountains above L.A. So I said, sure. And I hopped in the truck and I went up there and I grabbed uh, the call sheet, which gives you, you know, tells you who you're uh, serving. And I saw that the commercials were for Ketchum Public Relations. I'm feeding them now. <laughs> now. Now I'm feeding them. So I called my sponsor, and I, I said, uh, we're really getting the gift now. Really. We're really, really getting the gift now. It's a miracle. Miracle? It's, it's a miracle. Miracle. These commercials, they're a miracle. He said, he said, I guess God had enough writers. He needed a few cooks today. And then he said, you know, you asked God if you could work for Ketchum and you forgot to tell him what you wanted to do. <laughs> as long as they're having a good time, those sponsors. When I was a year sober, I sponsored a guy named Roland and he called my house every night and left a message on my machine and he'd say, Scott, this is Roland. I'm sober. I love you. Good night. Five years later, when I was six years sober, my son Micah came to me and he said, You know, Dad, when I was a little boy, I couldn't fall asleep until I heard Roland's voice on the machine. And when I heard Roland's voice on the machine, I knew that you weren't drinking and it was safe and I could go to bed. I told him there was no God in his life. I tried to rip God right out of his life. And Roland came over that phone every night and tucked him in. I still sponsor Roland. I just gave him a cake for his 14th birthday last week. And my son and he just adore each other. Um, I had no idea what you were going to do for us and what you were going to do to us. The bad news is, is our problem mainly rests in our mind, and the good news is, is our problem mainly rests in our mind. This is the only text about recovery from a fatal illness that contains the sentence, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. There's no book about malaria that says malaria is a hoot. You'll love malaria. It's fabulous stuff. But you see, we wouldn't get... these these. Moments of joy that you've heard today, that you're going to hear tomorrow, that you heard last night, they wouldn't be part of a recovery from a fatal illness if our problem didn't mainly rest in our mind. And the bad news is, is our problem mainly rests in our mind. Uh, some years ago, I, I, uh, um, my wife Nancy was walking through our room and she heard me talking to a new guy and, and, um, uh, and, and she heard me saying to the phone, let's say the aliens are coming. <laughs> Uh, she stopped short. She ain't missing a moment of this, you know. I said, look, I'm not telling you the aliens aren't coming. That's an outside interest, okay? I'm not they could very well be coming, but I have one question. Why you? Why have they come for you? You're 11 days sober. You have no life. Why have they come for your sorry ass? <clears throat> Don't you think they're going to call a cop or go to the post office or something, you know? Plus, he's sleeping with the Bible on his chest to ward them off. So they're going to traverse a galaxy, walk into his house, go, oh no, the Bible, let's go home. <laughs> if you're new and the aliens are coming for you, welcome to AA. Welcome home, guys. Thanks. Thanks.